Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, hello, uh, good morning, welcome to uh, the city. My name is Andre, I'm the lead pastor here at the city. If this is your first time here, love to extend a warm welcome to you. Thanks so much for tuning in to our online live stream. Looking forward to meeting you in person someday. Uh, I'm joined here, of course, by our wonderful uh, production crew as well as worship team. They, they do an amazing job, that is solid stuff. Uh, and so, you know, I, I am in good company here, but I uh, am longing and pining for the day where we all get to come back together. We have room for you folks here. Uh, we have many chairs and so we would love some butts to fill out those chairs. Uh, of course, when measures are make it uh, viable to do so. Um, love that we're entering into another Alpha season. Alpha is beautiful. I so stand by it. Some of my uh, most treasured people actually came to faith through Alpha and so I believe that it's effective, it's powerful. And I want to echo what Tim said, uh, that you don't have to be the world's greatest apologist to uh, bring someone to Alpha to share your faith. Uh, the word apologist doesn't mean that you say sorry a lot. Uh, it actually comes from the, term, uh, the, the word apologia, which means to defend your faith or to give a reason for your faith. And I think we can all do that, right? We can all give a reason for why we are following Jesus, for why we are pursuing the call of God, for why we long for God's kingdom. We have reason, folks. We have reason for all that God has done in our lives, for all that God has uh, given us the privilege and honor of seeing His power, His glory, His might, His splendor. We have a reason to share. And you know, one of the things I realized is that, you know, as culture becomes more and more secular, um, it, is, it is tragic that much of what we affirm as core Christian doctrine and belief is progressively becoming more and more controversial. A core Christian doctrine is this, that we believe that you need Jesus in order to be saved. You need Jesus in order that you may have eternal, everlasting life. And that is not just a claim, but that as believers, as Christians, we affirm as truth. And so perhaps we need to come back to a fidelity to what is core Christian doctrine. Perhaps we need to come back to reaffirming what is truth as we glean, as we read from God's Word, as the Spirit reveals to us, to not give in to a, a kind of palatability to culture, but to instead stand firm on what we believe to be true. And if this is true, folks, if what I'm saying is true, what, if the Gospel is true, then it must provoke in us an urgency to share it. It must provoke in us an urgency to be witnesses in our world for the sake of the world. Amen? I know, not the most, uh, you know, <laughs> funny transition in, but I've been burdened by this, folks. And so I want to encourage you to take this opportunity, lay hold of this opportunity that's coming up uh, in the month of September, lay hold of it, uh, the Alpha course. It's a great way for you to begin to take steps uh, towards uh, being a witness for the gospel. Amen? Amen. Well, uh, we are continuing... Uh, with uh, the series today. We are on week three of our study uh, in First Peter. But before I go into that, um, you know, this morning I just woke up with this sense that we are to contend for spiritual breakthrough in the lives of our people, specifically in the area of physical healing. You know, I so believe that God wants to give us an inbreaking of His kingdom to reveal, to give us a foretaste of His kingdom where every wrong thing will be made right, where our bodies will be rejuvenated, will be made whole and well. God wants to give us a taste of what His incoming kingdom is going to look like. And I believe, you know, that we can glean through the life of Jesus that signs and wonders follow the proclamation of the gospel. When you proclaim the words of God, His power is revealed. His glory is seen. Why do we contend for physical healings? Because we want the glory of God to be seen on the earth such that the people, all peoples of the earth, may glorify our God. That is why we go after physical healing. And so this day, uh, whatever your need is, I would love to spend some time this morning praying for you and standing with you and declaring God's healing over you. This healing that we talk about it was made possible. The provision for it is already given through the cross. Jesus bore our stripes, bore the stripes such that we may be healed. And today we want to lay hold of the promise of God over his people today. 
And so if that is you, you know, you have a physical pain, be it, uh, you know, your wrist, your ankle, your knees, or be, maybe, you know, you're not just feeling too well, or maybe you are battling with a terminal condition. I believe it's all the same. God wants to bring healing into your life. Notice in Scripture that God doesn't call for the people of God to beg for healing. He calls us to heal people, to go forth, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And so today we want to take God at His word. Before we spend some time praying, you know, I have a few words of knowledge I'll have to re- release. And words of knowledge is simply, you know, it's, it's a download from heaven that, that God just wants to highlight a couple of uh, conditions, and I believe, uh, through the Spirit that we are to uh, pray for. But, but nevertheless, you know, in, in this time, whatever your ailment, whatever your pain, whatever your condition, I believe God wants to bring healing into your life. You know, a couple of things that, that I, I was really prompted to pray for this morning it was one, um, we were very prompted to pray for ankle issues. If you have any ankle issues, you know, particularly when you rotate your ankle, you feel a kind of sharp pain. I would love to pray for you and stand with you for healing. Uh, you know, I saw a picture of a, an arrow striking uh, the hips, you know, and I, I just want to pray for uh, hips today. Uh, if you have a sharp pain in your hips, uh, and I believe that this was caused by an injury or by a fall, I would love to pray for you this morning. And also adrenal fatigue. Uh, if you are experiencing any kind of adrenal fatigue, I believe God wants to bring uh, just refreshing and strength uh, to your body. And so uh, if that is you, wherever you're at, if you need uh, healing for your body, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, just stand up. Just stand up as an act of saying, I want to receive God's healing. I want to receive this breakthrough for my life. I want to, uh, I just want to be in agreement with God's word. And that is you. I'd love to pray for you this morning. Jesus, we look at your word this day and our hearts are filled with faith. We think about how you've brought your power to people in need. And today, God, you say that this authority and power you have vested and given to your church. So right now, in the name of Jesus, in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, we speak healing to every physical pain, to every infirmity, to every condition. In the mighty name of Jesus, you are to bow all pain you are to go in Jesus' name. The blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus speaks a better word. And so right now we speak to hips, we speak to ankles to come into alignment in Jesus' name for all pain, for all numbness to go right now in Jesus' name. We speak to cancer and we say you have no hope. You have no hope. Cancer's name is not bigger, more powerful than the name of Jesus. Jesus' name is the name above all names. And so we speak the name of Jesus over cancer. Over cancer right now, you are to bow in the name of Jesus. We speak for bodies to be made whole and well in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, you know... Uh, I encourage you right now, wherever you're at, just check your body, you know, if it's something that you can measure, if it's, like a, if it's like a knee thing, just go and test it out. And if you experience any change, it doesn't have to be 100%, but we are believing for 100%. But if you're experiencing any change, any improvement, just make it known in the chat and we'd love to rejoice and celebrate with you. Jesus is alive. His spirit is at work. And today we rejoice as, as God's people in all that He is doing in and through us. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we are going through First uh, Peter today. This is week three of First Peter. I have the privilege of bringing you God's Word this morning. I love for wherever you're at to join me in the reading of God's Word, His Holy Scriptures. This is not just a textbook that we reference, but these are the words of the living God. These words are living. They are breathing and they breathe life into our mortal beings. And when we read them, when we recite them, something happens in us. God's Word transforms us. And so let us together read God's Word. I'd love to uh, go through First Peter chapter 2 this morning. Would you join me in the reading of God's Word? Therefore, Peter says, read yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, 
so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 4, as you come to Him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Skipping to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you for the words of Scripture that illuminate our hearts, that gives us not just instructions for how to live life, but it reveals to us, God, your, the truth of your kingdom, the magnitude of your love for us. Indeed, God, once we were not a people, but today we are the people of God. Not by our own strength, not by our own might, not by our self-will, but by your cross through your blood that was shed for us. We acknowledge today as your people that we cannot self-actualize salvation. We need the cross. We need the blood of Jesus. That is the beauty of the gospel. It is not self-will or effort to which we are saved, but it's by your mercy, your grace, your blood freely given to all of us. As God, we pray this day, even as we look at the words of Scripture, let that truth be so imprinted, seared into our very hearts. The beauty of your mercy, your grace, freely given to us. Once we were as scarlet, our sins have made us scarlet, now we are white as snow. And it's only possible through your blood. So we give thanks to you this day. We rejoice in the work of your salvation. Speak to us, we pray, as we look at your Holy Scriptures this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, for those of you who have been around for a while, I wonder uh, if you remember your first job. Your first job. What's the first job uh, that uh, you had? What's the first thing that uh, you, you know, participated participated in that actually paid you money. Uh, now, most of my friends, uh, their first job would be uh, Subway or, uh, you know, going to start, uh, or working in Starbucks, you know, being a barista, sweeping the floors, or Ben & Jerry's, when Ben & Jerry's was still a thing. Uh, you know, these, these were common first jobs. Now, you may be wondering, what was Andre's first job? Andre's first job wasn't, uh, you know, working at church. My first job, ladies and gentlemen, uh, was selling water filters. That was my first job. You know, people sold sandwiches, they sold coffee. I sold water filters, folks. Uh, that was my first job. And that was when I was 17 years old. I sold water filters. And let, let me explain to you uh, the way it worked. Now, the way it worked is uh, I signed up for this company and I had to pay them $200 up front uh, in order to be registered and get a stack of name cards that said Andre Tan sales associate. And so, uh, you know, I paid $200 uh, to be registered as a salesperson, and I did roadshow, folks. Uh, you know, introvert Andre did roadshows, you know, I was in shopping malls, I would set up these booths to sell water filters and all that kind of stuff. And the way it works is that uh, once, you know, you sold uh, three water filters, uh, you would be promoted to a uh, to a manager. And then when you're a manager, you would uh, manage others' associate, and then you get a commission from them, and then you had someone over you uh, that would receive commission from you as well. It was kind of like shaped that way, you know, if, if you were, you know, you had manager and sales associate. It's kind of shaped uh, that, that way, uh, if you know. Uh, and so, um, let me tell you, man, I was such a great salesman. My first two customers, 
were my parents and my aunt. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, very quickly, I became manager, folks. At 17 years old, I was manager, you know, uh, and all that good stuff. Now, uh, I remember we had this product, this particular product. Uh, aside from water filter, filters, we did like some other products. And we had this product, it was a shower head. And in the shower head, it had all these like sediments uh, in there. And, uh, you know, we sold this shower head for like, I think a hundred bucks. And uh, we made these claims, right, that, you know, when you shower this shower head, like all your acne will disappear. Your skin, right, if it's like saggy, will like toying back up, you know, it'll be very supple. Uh, you know, if you're a tan, it'll make you fairer. Uh, it'll remove all the impurities and all that kind of stuff. Now, amazing, amazing claims, right? But now, all these years later, uh, I realized that none of them were backed by actually any, any science nor research. Now, what I discovered through this job was this, that if you're tenacious enough, convincing enough, and if people are actually gullible enough, you could basically get away with anything. I know, I know. Scary, right? Andre is pretty scary. You can literally, right, target any kind of insecurity, exploit any need in order to get your way. Now, here's my point of bringing this story up. And that is this, we simply do not live in neutral space. We do not live in neutral space. That, that today, there are forces at work, whether marketers or principalities, natural or supernatural, that are seeking to form your loves and longings in doing so, and in doing so, win you over to their cause, to their side. There are claims being made on your heart, and your allegiance, and your soul today. And what Peter is admonishing us through 1 Peter is this. Be sober. Be alert. Do not be gullible or naive and buy into the narrative of the world or the lies of the evil one. Do not identify yourself with being a citizen of the world governed by its ways, its pursuits, and its desire. But instead, you are a citizen of heaven. You are an exile in the world. Therefore, your ethical vision imperatives, goals, desires, matrix of success are shaped by this kingdom that you have been grafted into through Jesus. This is what First Peter is essentially about. Now, I don't know about you, whether you have anyone in your life that you, uh, you, know, you identify as being you know, older and, and more matured and have a ton of life experience, maybe someone in their 60s or 70s and that, that just have lived life and have lived life well. I don't know whether you have like a picture of someone like that. And you know, if I had, a, I had someone like that in my life, I would go, man, like if I could only get five minutes with this person, you know, if, like for me, like one of my great heroes here since passed, it's, uh, it's a, a man named Eugene Peterson who wrote, wrote a message translation and uh, has wrote a bunch of brilliant books, has really shaped my paradigm of pastoral ministry. And I've been thinking to myself, man, you know, if, if EP was alive, man, you know, I would, I would pay like, any amount of money to get five minutes with him to ask him, like, how do you follow Jesus well? In, in, of how do you go for the long haul? What does it mean to pastor people really well? If I could only have five minutes of his time, right? I don't know whether you have a person like that in mind. Now, in some sense, that is what we have with First Peter. Peter, at this point in his life, is aged, is matured. He has done great things for God, but he's also made a ton of mistakes, Right, we, we know through scripture. And he knows what it means to follow Jesus. He has seen so much, heard so much, experienced so much, he has done so much. Now, Peter in this text is urgent. Hear me, he's, he's urgent about how believers should live counter to the culture all around them. He's urgent about it. Now, in my view, pastorally, First Peter is one of the most crucial texts for the believers, for the believer of God, for the people of God. Uh, interestingly, you know, one of my first pastoral impulses when we experienced all that we experienced in 2020 was to buckle down, was to bear down on First Peter to really understand uh, this text well. Because First Peter has an assumption of Christians following Jesus where they are a cultural minority without religious protections and freedoms, and where they have to navigate their faith as exiles. That is the context, the audience of First Peter. They live in the midst of host culture, seeking to assimilate them 
to make them buy into their way. And here they are a minority, trying to hold on and preserve their identity as God's people in the midst of prevailing cultural forces and hardship. Now let's check out this letter written to the early church from an unknown author. It says this, Christians are not different from the rest in their nationality, language or customs. They live in their own countries but as sojourners. They fulfill all the duties as citizens but they suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland wherever they are, but their homeland is not in any one place. They're in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey all laws, but they live higher than that required by law. They love all, but all persecute them. That is the identity of the people of God in First Peter. And I'd like to put it to you that this identity as exiles, as people chosen and exiled in the world, is not an identity exclusive to the first, sen- first century, second century, or third century Christians. But in many ways today, in light of all the cultural forces at work around us, we folks are exiles. We need to come back to this sacred identity of the people of God. We are not citizens of the world. We are citizens of God, the kingdom. No. Pastor Janice has done well taking us through chapter one. Encourage you to check out uh, those first two sermons. Brilliant, brilliant job. Today I'd like to take you to chapter two. Now, Peter opens his epistle in chapter one with addressing his audience as you who are chosen and exiled. Chosen, you are beloved by God, seen and known by Him, and yet you are exiled. Living in a land that is not your own, without certain rights, living in the midst of a contrary host culture, fighting to preserve your identity. Two seemingly opposing realities held in a beautiful tension. That is the people of God. Exiled, resisted, persecuted, hated, yet chosen, beloved, seen, known, accepted, belong to God, favored by Him. Isn't that so true? Now, another theme PJ uh, explored uh, is this call to holiness. We're not just exiled for exalt's sake, but we are called to holiness, to a holy living. Specifically, verse 15 calls us to be holy in conduct. It is the way we ought to live because we have been called and chosen by a holy God. Now, hear this. Holiness or to be holy isn't just abstaining from stuff. It is to be set apart, distinct for God. Hear me, we are exiles not because we've been displaced in the world, We are exiles because we are distinct from the world. We're exiles not because of our displacement. We're exiles because of our distinctiveness, because we are called to be holy. And another word used in the King James to describe this term exiles is the word pilgrim. I love this word, pilgrim, pilgrim. We're exiles longing for God's kingdom, but we are also pilgrims on a journey. And believe we are journeying, folks, towards this biblical vision of holiness. Isn't that beautiful? Have that as a kind of picture in your mind of what Peter is saying. You're exiled, you're displaced, but you're also pilgrims. You're journeying. You're traversing this road called life unto this biblical vision of holiness. Isn't that beautiful? And it's with that that we finally approach chapter 2. Long introduction, classic Andre. Now, chapter 2 is almost like a hinge. It's like a hinge. Here we see the letter pivoting. It's turning. It's taking a different direction. In the first chapter, we read about our identity, what God has done for us, His resurrection power, how He's called us to be holy. And in chapter 2, Peter pivots the letter towards how do we actually actualize it? How do we actually live out our identity as exiles, as ones who are called to holiness? What, What do we do? What needs to happen? Peter starts off with this verse, then if you are a fan of IBS, uh, sorry, inductive Bible study, not irritable, that thing, but IBS, inductive Bible study, when you see the word therefore, you know, wow, man, I need to look at what was written before. And so Peter starts off with this word, therefore, in light of everything you've heard, do this, read yourselves. In light of all that you've heard, in light of all that Christ has done for you, in light of the resurrection, in light of the cross, in light of Him calling you chosen, therefore, rid yourselves. Now, some of us might be of the opinion that the Christian life works this way. I 
as long as I get zapped by the Holy Spirit hard enough, all of the dysfunction, struggle, sin, brokenness that I've accumulated over years and years and years will just melt away in an instant. And so we go for altar calls again and again and again, almost with a lottery mentality. One fine day, everything's going to be made right. It's going to be made good. Or we adopt a different uh, rhetoric, na- different narrative, like, okay, life on earth is struggle town. I won't be set free with, uh, while I'm life on earth. And so maybe one day when I die, then I'll be whole and set free. In that, in that case, right, if you are banking on your death, to be whole and set free, then death is your saviour. Jesus isn't your saviour. Hear me, Jesus didn't come to make good peop- bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And we are incapable of that kind of resurrection of the soul in and of our own strength. We need Christ. We need Jesus in order to be transformed. So true. But it's not with a kind of passive mentality. Zap me, Holy Spirit, so that I may be changed. There is a central place for self-effort in our discipleship with Jesus. Though we have been justified through the cross, read the New Testament. Most of it is about our sanctification. And our sanctification doesn't occur automatically just because we've been justified. There is a central place for effort in the life of the believer. Can I get an amen? And one of the things we observe through the New Testament is that these are people, okay, who were like whacked by the Holy Spirit, who saw God's power, might, encountered the living Christ. And yet, most of the New Testament was about them working through issues, growing, maturing, being sanctified. And so it's not just about being whacked. We need to put in effort, to be intentional about being transformed. Amen? Now, the word here is rid yourselves of. And this gives us a picture of taking off soiled, dirty clothes or putting aside the unnecessary. Now, when I was 15 years old, I participated in this adventure leadership camp. I know, I look so pale, like I have not been in the sun for six months, which is partially true. But back when I was 15, Andre was like an adventure guy, you know. I had my kayaking certification, I had sports climbing certification, all that kind of stuff. I was phenomenal gone are those days. But when I was 15 years old, I participated in this adventure camp. It was four days, three nights. We had to do a bunch of stuff, right? We had to do this like cross-channel kayaking. We had to do rock climbing. We had to do our orienteering in Pulau Ubin. It was four days, three nights. We slept in tents. We ate from canned food. We did Bunsen burner stuff. Like it was just camping. And I remember the last uh, event. Uh, it culminated in this last thing that we had to do. We were... Uh, Pitch, uh, our, our camp was at Chinese Garden. We had spent the night there. And then our last and final task was we had to walk from Chinese Garden all the way back to our school in Badok. That was our last test. And I remember, you know, at that point in time, four days, three nights, we were having abrasion in places that I didn't even know existed. Uh, everything was raw, tender, painful. We were exhausted. And it was just horrible. It was just like hell, right? And I remember, you know, we were walking down this uh, expedition uh, back to uh, Badok, and no one was talking, right? All of us were exhausted. You know, whenever one guy decided to be countercultural and be like, hey guys, we can do it, we tell him to shut up. <laughs> this, is, this is horrible. Let's just like relish in this hor- hor- horribleness. And so we were walking, and then uh, I remember at one point, uh, one of my buddies, he walked over to a dustbin, and he opened his bag, and he started tossing his shoes in the, 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 the dustbin. He started taking canned food that uh, we had left over. He started throwing it in the dustbin. He started throwing all his stuff into the dustbin. Then I walked over and I was like, what are you doing? And he said, I don't need it. Right? I don't need it anymore. So why do I keep it? So he threw. And that started this wave of like Marie Kondo during the expedition. People are like, like oh, chug it, chug it. Like, like, why do I need this? Chug it, chug it, chug it. Now you might think these are like small little items, but like, 2 kg, 3 kg compounded over 10, 20 kilometer is a lot. And so people are just like chugging all their stuff because it was weighing them down, right? Now, if you use that as a kind of analogy or a picture, we can view the words of Peter in this light. What behaviors, attachments that you have in life, right? What exists in your life that actually hinders you 
weighs you down in this pilgrimage onto holiness? What in your life does not contribute towards this vision of holiness? What does not line up with your identity as a citizen of heaven? What are you holding on to? That though little, though small, if compounded over the entire distance of your life, actually has a bearing on who you are in the future. Therefore, Peter says, rid yourselves of these things. And he goes on to describe five things to rid ourselves of. First off, he goes malice, and then he says all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Malice, it's defined as a desire to harm or to hurt someone. The seed, it has this idea of setting up bait in a trap in order to catch someone, consciously acting in an insincere way in order to trap someone and manipulate something out of them. Hypocrisy, wearing a mask, performing or pretending to be something you are not in order to get something over other people. Envy, to resent someone else's prosperity. This leads to grudges, bitterness, gossip. Slander, it has this idea of backbiting, destroying someone else's reputation behind their back. And what Peter is saying that is that this, these five behaviors are inappropriate, are unbecoming for the people of God. Now, how did this happen? How did the people of God become people who are malicious, deceitful, hypocritic, envious, slanderous, slandering? I don't know. How did they become people who embody these traits. It would always go to remember that in 1 Peter, it was a time of great pressure. The people of God were in exile. They were political exiles. They were, they were second-class citizens in the, in the kingdom of Rome. Right? And there was a scarcity mentality. Not just scarcity mentality. It was actual physical scarcity. They had lack. They were under pressure. And in these kind of conditions, that is what surfaces. That is what comes to the fore. And haven't we seen this played out through COVID-19? In 2020, when scarcity was a very real thing, what happened? People started fending for themselves. Self-centeredness, self-preservation came to the fore. And that was what happened to the people of God. And Peter is saying this, that even in pressure, even when there's scarcity, these behaviors are unbecoming for the people of God. Now, let's just pause for a second and just respond to this. In your heart right now, is there anybody in your life that you do not wish God's best for them? Instead, you wish for harm to come upon them. Or when they have a setback or stumble, you subtly rejoice in your heart because you've got that hit. Now, I found that I've very easily, I'm very easily able to disconnect from these words when I read it. And so often when I turn upon these texts, I'll take a moment, pause, read each word, understand its meaning, and then ask myself some questions. Malice, is there anybody that you do not wish God's best for them, someone you loathe? Deceit and hypocrisy, are you acting one way in front of a group of people, acting another way behind their back? Envy, are you envious of other people? Maybe you see other people further along in life, getting ahead, and you think they don't deserve it. And your heart is filled with bitterness towards them, even God. Is there envy in your heart toward other people that makes you want to cut them down and make light of their achievements so you can feel better about yourself? Slander. Do you find yourself criticizing other people, gossiping, slander, spreading misinformation, ruining reputations? Now, most of us don't naturally bring this out to people, do we? Right? We don't go, I'm so envious. I wish they would die. I wish that they're like, you know, Hamkatan. I wish like, they would lose everything. None of us brings it out before other people. These traits, I'd like to put it to you, are often subtle, hidden, unseen. They rarely come to the fore. And what gradually happens is that these become nuanced, unexamined attitudes of the heart. They become tangled and woven into our personality. They are not the most outrightly obvious nor immoral, but it's precisely these little things they're insidious, they're dangerous because they creep up, they sink in roots and they choke out all that God wants to do in and through your life. Now maybe you like me, upon reading this text, you go, man, I have these things. These are present in my life and I want so desperately to get rid of them. Now, these things, I like to put it to you, some of them, 
or for some of you, they're so entrenched in who you are that mere theological understanding wouldn't get rid of them. Mere theological understanding and self-will simply won't suffice. We need an alternative power. And look what Peter says here in verse 2. Rid yourselves, and then he says in verse 2, like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. It's interesting that, that the word grow up, oxana, is the same word used to describe that, that, that phenomenon where Christ increased and we decrease, that you may grow up. How, how does that happen? When you crave pure spiritual milk, Crave, it means long for, strain after, desire greatly. It's used in David's psalm as a deer panther for the water. So my soul longs for you. Here, I, I'd like to share you the semantic range of this word. This is such a powerful, intense word. It's used to describe a kind of hunger that once it is satisfied, right, you get hungry all over again. We know certain people that function that way. It's used to describe a husband's longing for his wife when they're in love. It's used to describe the longing of someone who has recently departed. It's also used to describe the longing of a parent for their prodigal's return. It's a deep, intense, visceral kind of longing. Crave pure spiritual milk. In the New King James Version, it says this, crave the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. And so Peter's response to our former way of life to our fleshly impulse, to the way of the world that so seeks to form our loves and longings, he says this, replace it with an intense longing for God's word and truth, such that you may disrupt it and expel it from your soul. Crave the pure milk of God's word. Now, if you're honest, many of us, even in trying to take the Bible seriously, face problems. We're puzzled by it, bored by it, Sometimes the language is complex, strange, difficult to comprehend. Perhaps you tried reading the Bible many times before, but come away with each reading even more confused than when we started. Maybe we don't trust it, right? How can an ancient, millennial old book possibly speak to the everyday realities of 21st century life? Maybe we're scared of it, right? Maybe we're scared of new doubts that will come up. Maybe we'll be, we'll be asked to do stuff that we don't want to do. Maybe the Bible has been weaponized against you and you fear that it could happen all again. But, and yet, if we look at the life of Jesus, we see a life entrenched in the Word of God. Jesus quoted the Scriptures, meditated on the Scriptures, wrestled with Scriptures, interpreted, interpreted the Scriptures, found His identity in the Scriptures, built His ethics on the Scriptures, and framed His world in the story of the Scriptures. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our mind about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind, what ideas we have about God is the most important thing about us. And that's why in the book of Genesis, when the snake, when Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve, he didn't come to them with a weapon or with an army. He came to them with an idea. The ideas that we believe about God ourselves and what life is to be, what shape who we become and how we live. And we live in a world full of ideas, the world of TED Talks, podcasts, books, and blog posts. We are presented with hundreds upon hundreds, even thousands of ideas each day. And the scary part of it is this, that every idea we digest actually does something in us. Every idea we digest has a bearing on who we become over time. And if we want to follow Jesus in our time and place, we have to find a way to guard our minds. As Paul says, to take every thought captive. How do we guard our minds? How do we stay focused on the things of God in this, in this world where there's a plethora of ideas? How do we live lives transfixed on God's way, will, and purpose? It is to adopt a practice of counterformation to adopt a way where we resist the onslaught of ideas, even lies. It is to root ourselves, to ground ourselves in the Word of God, in Scripture, to crave the pure milk of God's Word. Now, this instruction is especially challenging for us in our world, in our time and place, where we have access to information at our fingertips. We need to first and foremost come back 
and acknowledge Scripture's authority and come back to a fidelity to God's Word. Now, I love podcast books and commentaries, but give me the pure, unadulterated milk of God's Word. Here's the observation. In our modern world, we have severely downplayed and underestimated the transformational possibility that comes with the habitual reading of God's Word. Now, I put the text up because this is so true. We have severely downplayed and underestimated this in light of all the information we have access to, all the commentaries or regurgitated word. <laughs> we have severely downplayed the transformational possibility that comes with the reading of God's word. Thessalonians 2, 13 says this, we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you've heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. The word of God is at work in you. And that's what Jeremiah would say. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Job would say, I've not departed from his commands, but I've treasured his words more than daily food. Crave pure spiritual milk. Now, this phrase, of course, uh, rings very true for me these days because I have a newborn and she craves milk all the time. You know, and she gets very, very angsty when she's hungry. Uh, like one, one parent, I wouldn't say which. Uh, but you know, yala me, la me, la. Huh? She gets very angsty when she's hungry. And, and she, she gets very excited when it's, when it's milk time. And sometimes I look at her, I'm like, hey, you know, calm down. La. You know, it's just milk, right? You know, uh, you know, there's like all these like culinary options that are available to you when you grow up. There's like filet mignon. There's tiramisu, there's, you know, all sorts of like, stuff available for you. Like, you can calm down. But, you know, even though all these things are true and available for her when she grows up, she grows up, it doesn't matter to her. She is possessed by this primal, instinctive longing for milk. And that's what we need to come back to. We need to come back to this insatiable appetite for God's word, to crave it to have our appetites formed by this. Verse 3 says this, Crave because now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here we see a correlation. You crave that which you have tasted. In a way, your appetite can be formed. You crave whatever you have cultivated an appetite for. If you feed yourself on the trivility of the world, you will naturally crave for it. If you feed yourself on self-help books, you will naturally crave for it. That is what you default to when you're confused, when you're lost. But if you cultivate an appetite for God's word in high and low, in mountaintops and valley lows, in joy, in suffering, that is what you crave for. You can cultivate an appetite for God's word. And thinking of late, coming back to familiar yet lost practices. Bible at the start of the end of the day, studying the Bible, the Bible in one year, reading the Bible out loud, and even putting the Bible to memory. We need to come back to these familiar yet lost practices. You know, I had a privilege uh, a couple of weeks to spend some time with Auntie Lake Kim, and we know that uh, she's just going through um, you know, a lot right now and, and, and battling with, with illness. And, you know, we were privileged to spend some time with her and we, we were blown away, you know, me, Pastor Daniel and Pastor Joy, we were sitting there and just seeing her full of hope and joy, defiant joy in the midst of circumstance. And there she was, you know, putting honestly asked pastors to shame because she was just quoting scripture after scripture after scripture. She had put the Bible to memory and just found her security, her joy, her hope in God's word, in God's truth. It had become like her lifeline and, and, and she, she drew life from God's word, from the scripture. And perhaps we need to come back to that, to put the Bible into memory, to take God's word rightly, truly and sincerely, to let it frame not just our worldview, but frame our vision for life. We need to come back to that. We need to come back to that because God's word doesn't just inspire in us a counter-cultural ethic 
inspires in us countercultural faith, countercultural hope, countercultural love, countercultural joy, countercultural peace in the midst of trying, turbulent times. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I know I'm running out of time. I'll just go through the next couple passages real quickly. Now, to a people who are politically exiled by Rome, who didn't have the necessary ancestry to be royalty or priest, you don't wake up one day and go, man, you know, in five years' time, I want to be king doesn't happen that way. You need to be born in a certain lineage, have a certain kind of ancestry in order to make that happen. The same goes for being priests. Only the Levites could be priests. You don't wake up one day and say, I want to be a priest. To these people who didn't have the necessary ancestry, who were particularly exiled by Rome, ostracized, persecuted, unseen by society, Peter says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That is our identity as a people of God. You are chosen, not forsaken or rejected. You are royal, not common. You are holy, not sinful. You are special, called, seen, loved by God, of the God of all creation, who above all that He has made, says that you are His special, most treasured possession. You belong to Him. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Now in his uh, New York Times best-selling book, uh, James Clear wrote this book, Atomic Habits. It's pretty popular, many of you have read it. Uh, talks about, uh, introduces theory of why we ex- exercise restraint when we're trying to form habits. You know, why that actually happens? Why do we actually exercise our restraint, hold ourselves back uh, when we are trying to form habits? And the first uh, he describes as a kind of outcome restraint meaning we consider outcome, we weigh the, pro, we weigh the pros and cons, we, we look at the list, and then we eventually conclude, yeah, I don't, I don't want to do that because of the outcome. The other he describes as identity restraint. And that, in his research, is what actually creates and forms lasting change and good habits, meaning we choose not to do something because that is simply not who we are. He was saying in his book, and I don't have it up on the slide, he'll say this, that every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs, but as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. And that is what Peter is saying. In light of your election, in light of your chosenness, in light of your calling, in light of your identity as exiles, pilgrims, foreigners in this world, rid yourselves of these things and pursue holiness. That is simply not who you are. There's this story of uh, Saint Aug- Saint Augustine, and uh, this was a time before he became Saint Augustine. You know, uh, before he was Saint Augustine, uh, history would tell us that he lived such a promiscuous life. Um, he once described his heart as a cauldron of lust. Uh, he is famous for praying this prayer: "God, give me self-control, but not now." Um, you know, and uh, he was—he was, he had this promiscuity about him. He was sleeping around. Now, uh, there's this story of how he had an encounter with God when he was reading uh, Romans, which talks about putting to death uh, the deeds of the flesh. And the story goes, uh, he was in this city, and he ran into one of his ex-lovers. And uh, the lover ran to him and, and said, Augustine, it is I. And then he looks at her and he replies, Yes, but it is no longer I. It's no longer I. I'm no longer that promiscuous person. I'm no longer the guy that skips around. It is no longer I. Now see here, our election and status before God isn't in question. We do not pursue holiness in order that we may be found acceptable to God. We are first and foremost accepted, loved by God. And because this is who we are in God, Peter encourages us, hey folks, live out this identity. Live out of the abundance of God's love. No longer are you sinners. You are the people of God. And he wraps up this encouragement and exhortation in verse 11. He says this, 
Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. The word friend there is not the best translation. It actually translates better the word beloved. Dear beloved, beloved by God, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, abstain. If you are a serious follower of Jesus, folks, you would be accused, hated by men. That is simply the truth. We need to break off this fear of men and need to be palatable and liked by others. Gone are the days of the moderate, uh, you know, thoughtful person who sits on the fence. There is a coming a day where we will need to make known our stance, our beliefs, and our allegiances. In an increasingly polarized world, we need to stand distinctive and not palatable. But there's another side to this promise. As far as the exile, abstain. And then they will see your good works and glorify God. Which is to say this, that we as exiles, as pilgrims, as sojourners, as foreigners, as strangers in the land, can live such compelling lives. No longer do we need to cower in fear or compromise in order to be found palatable. We can live compelling, distinct lives from the rest of culture, shine and burn for the gospel, such that God may be glorified even amongst the pagans. That is the vision of God. Now, I'd like to close off with one final story as I invite the band to join me up front. And this story uh, comes from uh, Philip Yancey's book. Uh, it is, he wrote this book called Rumors of Another World. Rumors of Another World. And that's such a brilliant title because often when we read the words of Scripture, when we hear stories like this, we go, man, that's just a rumor from another world. That's not true. That's not possible. But I'd like to contend this morning that all that we have heard, that all that we have seen in Scripture isn't just a rumor. This truth can be experienced in the here and now. Now in this book, uh, he wrote about the story of the remarkable life of Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer captured by the Japanese in World War II. It was said uh, that Gordon was put to work building the Bur Burma Siam Railway through the thick Thai jungle for a potential invasion of India. Now the Japanese especially hated those who willing to surrender rather than die in their treatment of the soldiers were appalling. Prisoners were beat to death. Uh, they appeared to be lagging. They worked in 120 degree conditions and eventually 80,000 men uh, died building that ill-fated railway. Now just like the audience in First Peter, this were a group of people who lived in a time of great pressure and scarcity. Now, Gordon himself uh, got sick and almost died, and the prison camp was a case study of survival of the fittest. People fought, attacked, and schemed for the most meager provisions. Selfishness and hate were the ethos of the camp. Then one day, something shifted. One of the returning work crews, I was said, uh, came back uh, with a, uh, after they did the inventory, and they found that one shovel was missing. And then the Japanese guards began screaming uh, that if it was not returned, they would begin shooting prisoners. And at that point in time, they were like just roughing up everybody with their rifles raised, ready to kill. And then one man stood forward and said, it was me, I misplaced the shovel. And what happened was the soldiers beatily, uh, brutally beat that man to death. And now, later in the evening, uh, as they did a fresh inventory of the tools, they found that the shovel was not misplaced. It was merely a miscount. It was there all along. They had merely miscounted. And now that act of selfless love transformed the ethos of the camp as one man laid his life down. One prisoner would remember the words of Jesus, saying, no greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that was the act, the generous love of one man. Gordon recalls, following that, that death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were slowly being freed from his destructive grip. Yancey goes on to explain how the kingdom of God began to break out in the camp. Uh, in the midst of the hell of the war, the beauty of heaven shone through. They started pulling together their gifts and talents. 
The prisoners started to work together to form a jungle university. Uh, they would teach courses on history, philosophy, economics, math, natural science, and at least nine languages. They built a church uh, as a sacred place of worship. They made their own paint and started a gallery with showings. They made instruments and performed Mozart, ballets, and musical theatre. And when they were eventually released, they treated the guards who had tortured and brutalized them with kindness and compassion. Now, Yancy will conclude this story with these words. He said this, Perhaps something like this was what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favorite topic, the kingdom of God, in the soil of this violent, disordered world. An alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation. In the meantime, it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumors, but planting settlements in advance of that coming reign. Now, may we be exalted in First Peter to embrace our identity as exiles, not being in the world for the world's sake, but to live such countercultural lives filled with hope and promise. And so I am just burdened with this question. How can the church come to life again in light of its recent failures and recapture the imagination of this increasingly hostile, polarized world. This is when the people of God live, as Leslie Newmigan says, in such a way that provokes questions to which the gospel is the answer. It is to live with a provocative hope. Now I'd like to close off with some questions, even as we reflect on this text. Questions are coming up on the screen. First off, what do we primarily, who do we primarily identify as citizens of the world, governed by its lusts, desires? Or do we identify ourselves as exiles in the world, but not of it? Next question, what do we need to rid ourselves of? What is hindering, pulling us back from living out this vision of holiness? Third question is, what appetites do we need to correct? What do we give ourselves to? Where do we find our nourishment, our strength, our resource? our wisdom, what appetites do we need to correct? Last question is this, are we living compelling lives? Now these are questions are great to reflect on, but these questions, I'd like to put it to you, are secondary questions. The primary question is this, and that is, do you know that you're chosen, loved, and valued by God? All our pursuits stem from this one truth, that we are chosen, loved, value by God. We do not pursue transformation just for transformation's sake. We do not pursue holiness in order to be found acceptable before God. But because we have already been chosen, we have already been accepted, God sees us, He knows us, He loves us, and Peter would exhort us, hey, live out from this identity. You are no longer a sinner. You're no longer dead to sin, but now you are made alive to God. You get to be free from that, folks. You get to be free from that. You are loved, you are chosen, you are seen. And so this morning, as we close this time, let's come back to that one amazing truth that is the fundamentals of what the gospel is. This is good news. That it's not by our works to which we are saved. That we do not have to earn the approval of God. It is made known to us through the cross of Jesus Christ where he stretches his arms out wide and saying, this is how I love you. This is how much I love you. And let us come back to this sacred reality and truth. We are loved, chosen, seen, called by God. And so wherever you're at, just put a hand on your own heart. Holy Spirit, come upon us now. Make known the truth of God's word to our hearts. Wherever we are at in life, even if today we identify as a person who sins, identify as a person riddled with dysfunction, may we today shift from these false identities and instead embrace who you say we are. You say we are chosen, you say we we are loved, you say we belong. So God, we ask that this truth be made known to us. God, I pray for all who are listening right now, let your love go forth in this moment. Let your love be felt. 
in your very being. Let every spiritual sense be awakened to feel the magnitude of your love, O oh God. That we won't be a people motivated by shame or fear anymore, but we will live from this deep, settled assurance that we are loved by you, God. Lord, we repent when we have gone running and searching for earthly things to satisfy us. And God, we ask in this day, help us reframe our appetites. Help us crave and long for you, O God, such that our souls may be truly and fully satisfied. It's only through you, it's only by you. Give us this grace, we ask. In your name. Amen. Amen. Let us respond to God in worship together as the band leads us.